Hello everyone, we have a special episode today. These recent vaccine developments are huge, so I decided to bring back a previous guest. This guest is an equity research analyst in the healthcare space and has done a lot of work on COVID-19 and the vaccine developments. So please welcome, once again, Karen Anderson. Karen, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Rodolfo? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So, hey, brought you on here before and had great feedback about your podcast. And there's some recent developments that have come out on the vaccine. So want to see if I can bring you back to talk about these developments. But before we do that, just in case people haven't heard your last interview, can you tell everyone what you do or what do you do? <laughs> Yeah, sure. I, I work at Morningstar. I'm in equity research and I cover biotech companies. And of course, as part of this year, part of the pandemic, I got roped into doing a lot of the, the research around coronavirus, first about how it was spreading, and then now working on treatments and vaccines and trying to project how successful they'll be, how quickly supplies will ramp up, and just kind of analyzing the data as it comes out. All right, great. Now, how did you learn about the new developments that have come out recently? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A lot of times when you learn about new data coming out from clinical trials, the companies won't really release much in terms of details. And you have to wait for a publication in a major medical journal in order to, to find out more. But in this situation, it's really data by press release. I think these companies are trying to be as transparent as they can, given the urgency around the situation and how much people are, are really desperate to find out as much as they can about them as quickly as possible. So yeah, so I mean, really over the matter of the past couple of weeks, we've seen first the, the Pfizer readout and, and then the Moderna readout kind of back to back, both of these looking like more than 90% effective at preventing cases of COVID-19, which has been great news. I mean, again, we don't have all the details we normally would have, but I think the news actually came out today that Pfizer actually has the safety data now to file. They needed oh, okay. two months of safety data for half the people in their large 44,000 patient phase three trial. I think Moderna is going to have that safety data in a few days. So I think it's very likely that, you know, sometime by the end of November, we're probably going to see both of these companies filing for emergency use authorization. Mm. And then it, what happens in December, there's going to be probably two back-to-back -back advisory committee meetings. So this is where the FDA basically gets some advice from experts in the field. So these are experts with vaccines, epidemiologists, statisticians who have looked at the trial data and can give some kind of assessment, yay or nay, help the FDA make a decision here. I think once they get that advice from the advisory committee, if it's positive, I think the FDA could make a decision very quickly after that. Nice. Now, these tests, I know Moderna, you might not have as much information, but for the Pfizer one, can you talk about that? I know it's around 44,000 individuals that were in this test. Half got the vaccine and half the placebo. Can you talk about how the tests were done and how significant is that? That is 90% effective against fighting against it. And how do they come up with that? 
Yeah, so it's actually, you know, the design of these trials, I think, was partly inspired by the initial FDA guidance where the FDA said anything that we approve, we want to make sure it's at least 50% effective. Right. So the, the way these trials were designed, most of the companies have different kind of windows when they, they look at the data and determine whether or not it's reached significance and whether or not it is something that they could use to file for emergency use authorization, which is different from approval. This is what they're really trying to get first is just the okay to provide vaccine to people in high-risk categories because of chronic illnesses they have. These are elderly, essential workers, healthcare workers. These are the people who are really, I think, going to be targeted with this emergency use authorization. And once there's more safety data and more efficacy data, that's when we'll we'll probably get to the point, probably in the second quarter sometime Mm. next year, gets to the point where we can expand this more to just general adult population. But, But the way, for example, you know, just looking at Pfizer, they set it up, there were actually four different interim analysis points. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of analysts were getting kind of antsy, wondering if they'd actually reached their first interim analysis yet, because there, had, there hadn't been any news. And they talked about how they probably would have some efficacy data in October. And so what ended up happening is that they had been having discussions with the FDA, essentially, I think, whether that first interim analysis would be enough data, you know, even if it looked really promising. That analysis was set to happen when there were 32 total cases of COVID in the entire trial. And so what would happen is they'd look and then they'd figure out, well, how many cases were in the placebo arm? How many cases were in the vaccine arm? What does that tell us about how effective the vaccine is? But by the time they talked to the FDA, decided to wait a little longer, the number of cases was just ballooning. So by the time they actually did the first readout, it was actually kind of at the level of their third interim analysis. So they had 94 cases. And so they didn't give the exact split. They didn't give an exact number on efficacy, but it was probably probably something like 86 cases were in the placebo arm and four were in the vaccine arm, some, somewhere around that, right. that level. And so, so, yeah, so, I mean, it, what ended up happening is they, they have even more efficacy data than they had expected to have at this point. And they're going to be getting that final data for the final analysis by the end of November as well. So once these trials get to the point where they're fully enrolled and you have 44,000 people who are being followed, and unfortunately cases are so high in this country that you're going to be seeing cases coming from people who've enrolled in this trial. So the good news is that these trials should be generating data fairly quickly over the next couple of months for the other vaccines as well. Okay. And 94 cases, is, is that enough, you think? Is, is that a good number? You know, I think there's... Low. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there is discussion about this. And I think that in terms of, I think that's probably going to be one of the topics of the advisory committee. Do we have enough data? But you know, I think that Lise Moderna has said that they're actually going to be filing based on their final analysis. So they're going to wait till they have 150 cases. And I think by the time Pfizer actually files and gets around to finishing everything with their, their safety analysis, they're going to have more data too. So they're going to be probably closer to that 150 case. Okay. Level. And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, ideally we would perhaps wait longer, but at this point, if it continues with that trend of being more than 90% effective, I think it's going to be looking very promising. And with a strong safety record for both of these so far, I think they both have a very solid case for for getting that authorization before the end of the year. Nice. Okay. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a new design for this vaccine. This is the messenger RNA technology. 
Can you explain what exactly that is? I guess it's not the protein, yeah. it's actually creating the... It is, an, it is a new design. Both of them are actually this messenger RNA, which is basically, so mRNA is the genetic material that we directly use that to make proteins. And mm-hmm. so what they've done is they've taken the genetic sequence for making the spike protein, which is the spike protein is the protein that's on the outside of the coronavirus that allows them to infect cells. And so they've taken that sequence, they've put it inside of this lipid nanoparticle, which kind of protects it, and essentially just inject that into the body. And that lipid nanoparticle finds its way into cells. And then our own cells, we actually take that mRNA and use it to make the spike protein. And then the spike protein is expressed and our body sees it and thinks, wait a minute, this is not normal. (laughs) We need to defend ourselves against this. So that's what sparks the immune reaction. It's actually exciting on a couple of levels because one, it's your own body is, is actually performing the process of making this protein and then creating the immune response that we, that we need to get protection. But then on another level too, it makes it easier for the companies to make the vaccine because they don't have to go through the longer process of making the protein in a lab, which, you know, you have to use, well, with the really traditional vaccines, you might be using eggs first, Uh, you'll be using definitely be using cells. So it's just a longer, less reliable process. So there's nothing approved that uses this technology. But, you know, I have to say, I, I feel like we were looking at the data that we've seen now, I feel like we were lucky we were at the point we were with this technology, because I think it was, you know, we'd already seen some promising readouts for other vaccines, but they just hadn't gotten to the point where they'd really scaled up manufacturing. They hadn't run, you know, any large phase three studies yet. And so they were basically ready for kind of a a massive injection and capital ability to really scale up uh, their manufacturing and, and kind of press ahead much more rapidly than they'd been expecting to be able to do. So it's, it's definitely a, kind of an opportune time to have that technology kind of waiting in the wings. Okay. So prior to this, the fastest that they've come up with the vaccine was four years. And because of this technology, they were able to come up with this vaccine so quickly. Yeah. I mean, it's a combination of, you know, th- these two are definitely leading out of the gate. I'd say combination of the ability to make the vaccine so quickly with this technology, but then also you know, there, you can do a lot to speed development if you have enough money to prioritize everything yeah. right up front, you know, so even the older technologies, the antigen or the, the protein based vaccines, those are also moving forward. I mean, we're seeing a few of those entering late stage development, the phase three trials by the end of this year as well. So they're a little bit behind, but probably just a few months behind. Oh, wow. And, you know, and part of the reason there is that when you have investment from large government contracts or a lot of these companies as well are, are, are larger, large cap pharma names with enough cash to kind of put some investment in this, but, but they're willing in this case to, to put money in at risk. So normally you would wait for some kind of evidence from clinical trials before you start to scale up manufacturing. But in this case, what we've seen happening is companies will run phase one trials. The minute they get an initial positive signal, immediately start phase two, start planning phase three, fully scale up manufacturing for commercialization, kind of do all of these things at the same time. Right. So 
I think one concern has been, you know, are we doing this too fast? But I think what's actually happening is we're not really skipping steps. We're just doing multiple steps at the same time uh, when normally that's not practical and it's just too risky. You know, you're risking, you're risking too much of your investment without enough information. Got it. Situation. Okay. Now, can you explain the difference in the cold storage for these two different vaccines and yeah. why that's significant? Yeah, sure. So overall, I think mRNA vaccines are expected to be slightly more fragile than other kinds of vaccines. It looks like there are going to be some differences between them, and that's probably because of small differences in how they've modified the mRNA sequence and differences in that lipid layer that I talked about that's that's coding it. So different abilities to really protect it from degradation. So right now, Pfizer's, Pfizer BioNTech, their vaccine looks like the more delicate one. I think that's going to be long-term storage at something like negative 70 Celsius. I think that it can survive in a refrigerator for a short period of time, and it can survive in these thermal shippers for, you know, I think it's a couple of weeks, but those need to be replenished with dry ice and they can't be opened too frequently. Pfizer is also shipping these in very large packages. So you can't just say, you know, I'm a small pharmacy in North Dakota. I want to order 30 doses. No, you're ordering 975 doses. And so you have to figure out a way to use that. And if we were relying only on the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, I would say that creates a big challenge for more rural areas because they, they would have to somehow figure out how to repackage this and distribute it in smaller amounts. I think Pfizer is, is working on that. Pfizer's working on coming up with some, some smaller shipment scale <laughs> uh, for those sorts of situations. Mm. But I'd say, given that we're probably going to have these two vaccines at the same time, I think what could happen is that when states get their allocations, it's going to be up to them to decide where they, where they want to send these. And I think what they're going to do is say, if, if you're a, a large city, a, a huge hospital, you're going to be getting the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine mm. because hospitals will have these deep freeze uh, freezers that are able to, to hold this for long-term storage if they have happen to have extra. Your local CVS pharmacy in Chicago probably will be able to get enough people vaccinated that they'll be able to go through a shipment of this. But then I would reserve Moderna's, which can be ordered in, in much smaller amounts and can actually stay in the refrigerator for about a month, um, yeah. which is, you know, I'd say a pretty massive advantage. Um, that one I'd reserve for yeah, areas where you're not sure what the demand's going to be like and you don't know how quickly they can get people vaccinated. So I think it's, it's going to be important to have kind of a variety. It's nice with these first two, we have a little bit of variety in terms of their profiles. And I think as we get more and more vaccines have more and more information. In addition to storage, we might have information on a certain vaccine being better for elderly or a certain vaccine being better for, for kids eventually. And so hopefully we'll be able to kind of find the right niche for, for each of these. Okay. And now what about side effects? Do you know of any side effects? Yeah. So, so for these first two vaccines, the, the main side effect that people are seeing is just sort of what they warn you you might get from a flu shot. In some cases, slightly more severe. I think, you know, some people have had fever for a couple of days, some some achiness, but there haven't been any severe side effects. Uh, To me, it appears to be more kind of nuisance side effects as opposed to something that's actually really, really worrisome or or threatening to patients. I think that the two vaccines that we're waiting for phase three data for, I think that's where my attention would be more on safety because we did have, you know, AstraZeneca's vaccine and J&J's vaccine 
both of those phase three studies were actually paused briefly due to an illness in, in patients that is not clear if it's related to the vaccine. Mm. And those trials were resumed. And so that's good news. That means that they did the right thing. They paused the study. They weren't sure if it was connected and they weren't able to find a connection. So I think the right thing to do is to continue to follow these patients if you start to see more than one case of some very rare illness that starts to point to maybe this could be related to the vaccine. Mm. And so I think that's one of the reasons why you run these 30,000 or in the case of J&J, you know, 60,000 patient trials. It's to get a sense of these more rare side effects that you, you wouldn't get a window on with, with just a few hundred people. Yeah. Okay. And then how many doses will you have to take? Is it one or two? And do you know what the cost is going to be? Yeah. So most of the vaccines that are being studied right now are actually two doses. And these are either three or four weeks apart. So that's another challenge to getting this out to the public is trying to figure out how to time that, getting people to come back. If you go back to the, the pharmacy that you went to the first time, make sure that they give you the Pfizer vaccine again or the Moderna vaccine and not the other one. So there's there's different hurdles. So this is a, a bigger challenge in terms of, I think, the new IT systems that the government is rolling out. This has been done on a smaller scale before with, with flu vaccines, you know, trying to track people, but this is a bigger scale. And so a bit of a test for a newer system. But I'd say overall, we're looking at most of these with two doses. J&J could be a single dose. And I think that most of these larger companies that, I'm, that I've been talking about supply in 2021 going to be in the hundreds of millions, if not, you know, potentially a billion patients that could be reached. So our ability to supply the planet with vaccine will depend on how many of these can, can pass that hurdle of, you know, more than 50% efficacy. And I think, you know, now that we have better look like they might be more than 90%, I think expectations are maybe a little bit higher and hopes are a little bit higher that we're going to have a few vaccines that are well above that 50% mark. And then do you know what the cost will be? for these? Oh, sorry about that. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, the cost. So, so in the U.S., what's happened with, with most of these larger companies that the U.S. has uh, negotiated a contract, I think most of them call for upfront maybe 100 million doses, and then they might have options to, to expand that to more as needed. So, so basically, the government is paying for the vaccine. And in most of these cases, I mean, the price can vary, but I think these first two vaccines, I want to say it's somewhere around 40 or $50 about that the government is paying per course of treatment. I think that in terms of cost, you know, there could be some sort of administration costs, I think, depending where someone gets vaccinated and there's going to be costs, the states are going to have costs in terms of trying to distribute the vaccines. This should be essentially free. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. And do you know how long the immunity will last for this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to me, that's really the biggest question right. at this point and the hardest one to get any insight on until we let a year or two pass. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get kind of a sneak peek at what's going to happen. The, the best we can do is probably continue to follow people who, well, what's interesting is going to be to compare this to people who with natural immunity, I mean, people who've, who've gotten COVID, we've seen a couple cases of people getting reinfected, but not really on a, a large scale. But then also look at the people in the, who were in these initial phase one studies that started enrolling, what's been since March or April kind of timeframe. So we have people who have been vaccinated now for, you know, well over six months. So it's gonna be interesting to continue to follow them, figure out 
if there's any way we can reliably tell if someone's still protected, do they need to have antibodies? Do they need to have certain cells, certain T cells? How are we going to know when people need to be revaccinated? And I think the best guess today is that these vaccines could last a year or two, um, but it could be it could be several years. I mean, right. so it's it's really, you know, when you think about it, there are a lot of vaccines we get as children that we don't need again. There are also vaccines that that we need, like tetanus, that we might need a booster after 10 years. Um, and then there's flu vaccines, which, you know, we get just once a year. So I think it's it's probably based on other coronaviruses and experience with SARS and MERS and the studies that have been done there. Uh, you know, there's no approved vaccines, but the studies that have been done seem to indicate that it could be it could be a year. So hopefully we'll end up in a situation where these mRNA vaccines could be combined with flu vaccine. So there could be mRNA-based flu and coronavirus vaccines that are made once a year. So it could either be, you know, including a booster for coronavirus, including any kind of mutations that might be cropping up, and then the different variants of the flu that happen to be circulating that season. So we could end up with more effective flu vaccines also because of the mRNA technology. Mm. Okay. Wow. Well, thank you. So is there anything additional that you would like to talk about or any questions you think I might have left off asking you? Well, you know, one question I I get a lot is just, you know, assuming that we continue to see some good data with these vaccines, when will this all be over? When will we be be able to, when will things just be more normal? Um, And I guess what I would say, what I would say to that is, given how effective these are, even with 30, maybe 30% of our population saying, no way, you know, I don't want to get a vaccine, we can still get to herd immunity. And I think we're going to have enough supply, at least in the US, to start to get to that point around the middle of 2021. The way I'm thinking about it is first quarter is going to be very heavily these people who are are higher risk. Um, Second quarter is going to be finishing up with that and getting into people who are just healthy adults. And then hopefully kind of early third quarter, we might get some indication on whether this is something that is safe and a good idea to give to kids. But I'm thinking sometime around mid-year, we could start to cross the threshold where it's just getting harder and harder for the virus to actually find new people to infect uh, who are susceptible. And so we'll probably still be wearing masks and still be doing all the things that we're told to do to to keep the transmission lower. But I think the case count at that point should be much, much smaller and people are be able to to consider doing things that, you know, maybe don't seem reasonable at this point. So that's my hope anyway, sometime around mid-year next year. And you would say 30%, that's the threshold that if as long as it's less than that, that we should be good? I think that... I think it could probably go a little bit higher too. I mean, you know, it's hard to estimate exactly what percentage of the country has been infected. It's probably something, it's probably north of 10%, probably closer to 15% at this point. So if you add in those people mm. and then a certain percentage of them maybe wouldn't get the vaccine, plus those who are vaccinated, if efficacy is as high as 90%, you could probably get away with just vaccinating 50 to 60% of the country. Wow. Because you really only need, you know, depending how contagious a virus is, based on what we know about this virus, you know, you might only need about 60% of the population protected. So, so yeah, so we'll, we'll find out more about that as it goes as well. Uh, yeah. We'll find out more about how many people have actually had this and have some kind of protection 
how many people, once they actually see the positive data coming out with these vaccines, will maybe could, some people I know won't reconsider, but I think some people, once they see that there's really solid data behind these, could be persuaded that it's it's better than kind of waiting around to see if you happen to get infected. Yep. So, Well, Karen, thank you so, so, so much. It's great to hear from an expert and the number one healthcare strategist out there. So <laughs> thank you very much for filling us all in on these recent developments. This is great. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, Rodolfo. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Have a good one. All right. Yep. You too. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be in the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.